0: Our gospel lesson this morning is from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. Some Sadducees, those who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him a question Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife but no children, The man shall marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first married and died childless. Then the second and the third married her. And so in the same way, all seven died childless. Finally, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Those who belong to this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of a place in that age and in the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Indeed, they cannot die anymore because they are like angels and are children of God, being children of the resurrection. In the fact that the dead are raised, Moses himself showed In the story about the bush, where he speaks of the Lord as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is God not of the dead, but of the living, for to him all of them are alive. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. To modern ears, this whole notion of a widow marrying her dead husband's brother is just weird, or maybe a bit repulsive. But let's spend a little bit of time trying to understand what's going on. In that time and place, women were most certainly second-class citizens. There were some who had wealth, but by and large, women didn't own property. They were essentially dependent on the men in their lives, first their fathers, then their husbands, then their sons. I can't say that marriage had nothing to do with love, but certainly marriage was centered on practical necessities. Men would get together and make appropriate arrangements for women. Meanwhile, inheritance laws favored sons as well. When a man died, his sons would inherit his property and would continue the family line. If a man died without a son, and certainly if he died without any children, who would inherit. To address the issues of care for women and continuation of the family, leveret marriage was introduced. And that's what the Sadducees were talking about. If a man died without a son, the widow would marry his brother, and any son who issued from that marriage would be considered the son of the deceased man. He would be expected to take care of his mother, and to inherit the deceased man's property." So this is kind of strange, isn't it? I mean, not only is it strange to modern ears, but also it's kind of a torturous way to deal with the fact that women were powerless. Wouldn't it be better if women could just fend for themselves? That way they wouldn't need a man to take care of their needs. If they were widowed, they could inherit the husband's property and just go on living. And that's how Jesus describes the resurrection. He says essentially, look, you people are going to all these lengths to deal with a problem that has a fairly simple solution. Instead of leveret marriage, or indeed any marriage, being needed to care for disempowered women, all people will be supported and cared for by God. The four gospels have recurring discussions Of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven which for today's purposes let's just pretend that those are synonyms assume that those are synonyms and look specifically at at uh, verses in Luke about what the kingdom of God is like first and foremost the kingdom of God is good news in particular it's good news for the poor who shall inherit the kingdom Entering the kingdom of God requires single-minded perseverance and is costly, but at the same time, it's the outgrowth of something small like a mustard seed. It requires childlike faith, and wealth can be a barrier to entering it. It's here now, in our midst, but it's also yet to come. It's an already-but-not-yet transformation of creation. That's kind of complicated, right? Taken together, these disparate perspectives are teaching us that the kingdom of God is just different from what we know. It's a different form of existence that can only be explained in paradox. So let me read to you from Luke 13, verses 29 and 30. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and take their places at the banquet in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Jesus taught that people will come from all over the world to God's banquet table, while social hierarchies would be overturned. There's a recurring theme in the Old Testament that the Israelites were special. They were specially chosen by God to be a priestly people. They failed in their task and were exiled, but then God relented and reestablished them. So there was a presumption that they would be first in God's kingdom. Yet Jesus taught that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. He was trying to get them to understand that God's ways are not like our ways. You cannot earn your way into heaven by following some rules, like the Jewish power structure at the time was teaching. Instead, God chooses who will eat at his table and chooses people from north and south and east and west. Let me give you an analogy. You're all familiar with the ACT and SAT, right? You know, high school students take them um, and the ACT is scored on a 36-point scale. The higher your score, the more likely you are to get into a good college, though there are other factors involved as well. Supposing you get into college, then you need to work hard and learn so that you can be successful after college and continue to learn and work all through your life. Well, let's suppose instead that your ACT score determines your whole life not just in some metaphorical sense, but literally. Suppose that if you earn a 30 or above, you are given a mansion and a credit card you never have to pay off. But if you score below a 30, you're thrown out into the streets, penniless and naked. There's no second chance and no change to your circumstances after the test is over. Doesn't that sound a little bit ridiculous? Now, some among us would be okay because we would be in, but I personally couldn't live with the thought that 93% of the population would be irredeemably irredeemably doomed to a life of squalor. I don't think anyone who proposed such a plan would ever be elected to a school board or city council, let alone emperor of the world. And yet, That's something like what a lot of churches preach. They say, be careful what you do in this world, or else you'll be doomed to eternal torture in hell. Or maybe they say, you have to pray a certain prayer, which would be more like getting one specific question on the ACT correct. Can you imagine a world in which one question, asked and answered while you're a teenager, determines your whole life trajectory with no hope of change. Now imagine that instead of living to be 60 or 80 or 100 years old, we all live to be 1,000 years old. How much more ridiculous does this become? Make one mistake as a, as a teenager and suffer for 1,000 years? Well, if you believe in forever, then th- th- this whole life is just, just a blink of an eye. I cannot believe in a God who would decide eternal glory or eternal damnation on the basis of what we do in a few short years. I think people who preach that just can't imagine eternity. If we're raised to eternal life, then even a thousand years is as a day. Or like it it says in the song, uh, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing... God's praise than when we first begun. So why are we here? If the purpose of this life isn't to decide whether we go to heaven or hell, then why bother with it at all? Well, again, I'll compare it to school. We have a few short years to learn as much as we can. We learn how to treat each other and how we want to be treated. We learn to appreciate the pleasures and pains of these clay jars that contain our eternal treasure. We have great loves and great heartbreaks. And we carry all of those lessons into our next life. Now you may wonder why I go elk hunting every year. No, it's not about the meat. Although elk meat is really good, but I didn't get any this year. The camaraderie is part of it, but just a small part. To really enjoy elk hunting, you have to have a real deep and abiding passion for suffering and misery. You spend a week or more being cold, wet, and tired and push yourself to your absolute limits. But then, then you know what those limits are. It's like a competitor I saw on American Ninja Warrior once. you know that show American Ninja Warrior. It's like an obstacle course that they have to go through. Jessie Graff uh, is a stunt woman, and for a long time, she held all of the first woman to do X uh, records in American Ninja Warrior. So, so one time, Jessie Graff got to the last obstacle on that particular course, which was the elevator climb, where she had to climb up 35 feet using only her arms and two ropes that work like an invisible ladder. Now remember, this is at the end of an obstacle course, so she's already tired. The the way that that elevator climb works, like you would uh, support yourself with one hand and reach up and then the rope would latch so you could pull yourself up and then the rope would latch and so you climb like that with only your arms. Well, she failed. But she was smiling the whole time, such a a big smile on her face. Afterwards she said that she was pushing herself to her absolute limit and loved that feeling of using everything that she had. That's why we're here. We're here to learn from those great loves and great heartbreaks, those pleasures and pains in our lives, and use them to transform the world to match God's vision. school children, we cannot really achieve God's vision. But we can push ourselves to our absolute limits on how much we can love our neighbor and see what is possible in this world. Do you remember the song Rock and Roll Heaven by the Righteous Brothers? If the uh, The refrain is If you believe in forever, then life is just a one-night stand. If there's a rock and roll heaven, well, you know they have a hell of a band. They sang about all of the great musicians who have entered God's kingdom ahead of us. How amazing it will be. Someday, the Beatles will be reunited. Someday, we'll hear all the amazing things Jimi Hendrix has figured out to do on a guitar. And not only that, someday we'll hear Mozart and Beethoven and Rachmaninoff performing their works. We'll know how the psalms were meant to be sung. And that's just scratching the surface. Now, do I think all of those people prayed the sinner's prayer and passed the test? No. Well, I I, I don't really know, but I certainly doubt Mozart and Beethoven did because that wasn't the prevailing theology at the time. But would it be heaven without them? Would it be heaven without my Uncle Dick and Grandma Lois and my Grandpa Pete, who I didn't even, I've never even met, but uh, I've heard so much about him? I don't think so. Heaven is a place of eternal joy, and how can it be joyful without the people we love? And that's why I believe we are all saints bound for heaven. Some people may take a little longer to get there, some people may need to keep on learning after they die. But hey, is a long time, right? Let's try not to be people who need to spend a thousand years in remedial education. Let's focus on learning all that we can about living with each other, about sharing God's love, about loving God with all our heart and mind and strength, about loving our neighbor as ourselves in this life then one day we'll know how we did and where we still fall short, but our Savior Jesus Christ will keep teaching us, keep showing us his way of love while we dine at table in his eternal kingdom. Amen.